Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, July 10th. We begin with our weekly chat with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. We get the mayor's views on this week's City Hall public hearings on systemic racism and whether or not masks will be made mandatory in our city. What would happen to our province if more than 4 in 10 doctors either moved or retired? We hear details on a new poll from the Alberta Medical Association that says it is a distinct possibility. With race discussions continuing to be a hot topic around the world, we find out what not to say to someone who has experienced racial trauma. We speak with a mental health therapist and sociologist for some tips. The numbers have been staggering south of the border. Earlier this week, the U.S. set a record number for new coronavirus cases in one day with 60,000. We get a COVID-19 update from Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. And finally, it's a Friday tradition. We get the latest new releases from Brett McGarry of The Couch Potatoes. This week, a new futuristic thriller starring Charlize Theron called The Old Guard. 842, this is where we normally check in with Danielle Smith, brought to you by River's Edge Villa Bungalows in Cochrane, featuring breathtaking views of the Rocky Mountains. But joining us this morning with our weekly chat is Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Good morning, Mayor. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, it's been a, a powerful few days down at City Hall, wrapping up three days of public hearings on systemic racism. And in our news, we heard your words about experiencing racism and being the only minority in a room most of the time. So I'm wondering what your takeaway was as you, you listened to the people who were sharing their stories, the Calgarians and what they've experienced. Your takeaway from the three days of hearings. You know, uh, at the end of all of that late last night, uh, I was exhausted, I was heartbroken, uh, I was angry, um, but I wasn't surprised uh, because these are stories that racialized people talk about. We know these things happen. You know, uh, the the very last speaker, by coincidence, is my former chief of staff, who is a very accomplished black man, a partner in a law firm, the chief of staff to the mayor for a long time. And he was talking about how he gets pulled over by the police all the time. He was talking about how friends of his who live in the Beltline know they can't pop out to the store without their ID because they will get stopped and carded um, as they're walking down the street. And he was talking about the importance of the freedom to walk down the street uh, without being stopped or harassed. And I think for a lot of people, these things were surprising, that they didn't understand that these things happen right here in this great city. And so, you know, last night I, I, I stood up and I didn't know what I was going to say. And I talked for a long time. And I think you had a clip of that, right, mm-hmm. with my voice breaking a little bit. Mm-hmm. But what I was really trying to get at is where I was at the beginning, which is how do we reconcile our pride in the diversity and the pluralism of this place? It is probably the greatest experiment in pluralism in Canadian and in human history here in Canada with the fact that systemic racism still exists. Can you hold both of those things at the same time? And I think you can. And I think you can start with that pride, but move to real change uh, for people. And that's that's our challenge. But I will tell you, I was very proud of council last night because at the end of that hearing, I kind of didn't want to do the, the council work of amendments and motions and all that stuff. I didn't think that was a good way to end. Mm-hmm. But one of my colleagues, Councillor Diane Collier-Cart, said, no, there's one amendment that has to happen. And that amendment is that we have to acknowledge and recognize the fact that there is systemic racism in our city, in our community, in our organization, and in our institutions, including the City of Calgary and the Calgary Police Service. And the fact that that passed unanimously, uh, for me, meant the council was saying something very profound. Mm -hmm. Incredible and a step in the right direction, for sure. 
going to switch gears and I want to talk about uh, the controversy that's become masks. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was not a controversy, but now it seems to be. We're hearing that masks mandatory in many, many cities and towns in southern Ontario. And you've come out and said, um, if it has to be that way, uh, we might uh, be making masks mandatory. I'm sure you don't want to be the heavy. So what are you looking for? Uh, Well, you know, I don't mind being the heavy if it's the right thing to do uh, for people's health. But ultimately, the mask wearing in Calgary is way too low. It is much lower than in most cities. And we should, we're sort of at a steady state now of 40, 50, 60 new cases per day. But last weekend, we had, a, we had a big spike, and we had as many new cases as we had in the middle of May when everything was locked down. So I'm watching this stuff very carefully because we're just one outbreak away from a massive second wave. Uh, and remember, in the Spanish flu, the first wave killed 5 million, the second wave killed between 50 and 100 million. Oof. And so the second wave is super dangerous. It's Mm -hmm. not a theoretical thing. And we know very clearly that mask wearing doesn't actually protect you. It protects other people from you. But if everyone's wearing a mask, you can be protected from one another. So we need to see more mask wearing. That is incontrovertible. And you people who say that's a huge decline in my freedom, listen, if you hate breathing through a mask, you're going to hate breathing through a ventilator even more. Truth, for sure. So we got to do it, Um, and especially on transit and especially in crowded spaces like in crowded stores and so on. And if people aren't doing it, then we got to go to the next step. Um, And again, people won't feel comfortable taking transit until they feel transit is safe, is one example. If people aren't taking transit, that has very bad implications on the whole city, on our budget, uh, but also on people's ability to go back to work. So all of this stuff is really important. Um, and if it's going to take a bylaw, it will take a bylaw. But I would much prefer if citizens just increase their rate. But I just got an email this morning saying on transit, we're at barely 25 to 30 percent mask wearing. It's not enough. Thank you for time, Mayor. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend. Yeah. Final weekend of Stampede. Yahoo. Good for you. Yahoo. Thank you so much. That's take Mayor Nahednenshi. 819 on the morning news. Imagine you've been seeing the same family doctor for 15 years. Then you get a letter that they are closing up shop and uh, moving provinces. Many Albertans could experience that in the near future, according to a new poll from the group that represents physicians in this province. The AMA says 42% of their doctors are considering packing it in early now due to government actions. We found out more, find out more from AMA President Dr. Christine Molnair. Good morning, Dr. Molnair. Good morning. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us. Forty-two uh, percent of the doctors uh, with the number is is, is kind of staggering. I, I think I find it staggering. Were you surprised uh, by such a high number? Well, the, the reason we did uh, do the the survey is is exactly because we were hearing so many different things uh, about doctors retiring early, doctors leaving. We really felt we had to um, evaluate what the situation truly was. And yes, I find it quite um, alarming, um, and I'm I'm quite upset about the fact that we've been that we're in this situation. Uh, doctor, break down those numbers for us. What is it physicians are saying is making them either retire early or think about leaving the province altogether? Well, we had a good response to the survey. We had over fourteen, like we're fourteen hundred and seventy uh, physicians, which is a indicates a reliable survey so most of the doctors um that said they were making a change so half of the doctors that said they were making a change 
um, uh, that's 87% of the doctors said they were making a change. And just under half of those said it was because of the imposition of the physician funding framework by Minister Shandro. So that's a pretty pretty significant um, impact from that imposition, the lack of an agreement um, and the lack of the government's willingness to negotiate with with the Alberta Medical Association for doctors uh, is is really what's pushed doctors over the edge. I mean, it hasn't. It isn't really about money here. It's it's about the relationship and the relationship between Alberta doctors and the government is at an all time low. Um, doctors are stressed. Their their practices are some of them are not viable, um, and so they're. Uh, they're looking for some way to to practice, um, and unfortunately, uh, some of them are leaving. Um, significant number of them are thinking about it. Now, not everybody that thinks about it will will leave, but uh, 34% of the profession say they're going to uh, leave the profession entirely or mm. retire early. Wow! So it's it's uh, it's something that we really felt we had to let the public know. That, that that is the level of distress that's going on with Alberta Alberta doctors. Mm. Well, can, can we break it down? I'm wondering with the with the survey and particularly with the four out of ten doctors either considering moving or retiring. Can we break it down geographically uh, versus uh, you know uh, urban versus rural? Well, I know I ha- I don't have that exact data. Uh, we will have that though, so I can visit you again. But um, I just don't have that with me. But I, we do know that. Uh, rural doctors were already underserviced. Um, they already were struggling. And over the last number of years, we've been building uh, a, a more of a strong rural uh, contingent of doctors in teams that uh, work together. And rural Alberta was becoming a place that young physicians that were trained in Alberta or other prairie provinces wanted to, to practice. And we've seen a dramatic change in, in that. Um, I think that a significant number of those doctors we will find are rural, but I just don't have those numbers. Well, we'll definitely have you back on and we'll break that down a little further when you get that information. We'd love to talk to you again. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, doctor. Well, thank you so much for having me on your on your show. That's, I appreciate it. We appreciate Bye-bye. your time. Thanks. That's Dr. Christine Molner, who is president of the Alberta Medical Association. 609 on the morning news. Race is at the forefront of conversations across North America and around the world for that matter. But this can be a challenging time for people who have not experienced racial trauma. Our next guest will help us with what not to say. We're joined by Ashley McGirt, a therapist specializing in racial trauma. Good morning to you, Ashley. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Well, here in our city, I know you're based in in Washington State. We've been having powerful racism discussions at City Hall over the past few days. And there's clearly a lot of trauma for many people. So we need to be aware of our language. Is that is that correct? The words uh, matter that much? Yeah, definitely. The things that we say, the things that we do, it's, it's really important to be mindful, especially now in this current season. So what things, Ashley, in particular, do we need to be most careful of and and perhaps not say in this case? Well, the first thing is give yourself grace. We're all going to make mistakes, but it's important to not personalize everything and to really just ask 
um, people of color, especially black people, how can you show up for them in this space right now, as opposed to, you know, automatically really making things about yourself um, or doing a lot of things like um, shame or guilt or putting individuals in a position to where they really have to educate or apologize. Um, And each person is different. So it's really important to just ask, you know, how can I show up in this moment um, to really just be specific and ask questions? Do you think the people, Ashley, are, are just afraid to ask those questions, that they they have a trepidation to, to, to come forward to somebody and say, okay, listen, you know, uh, what, uh, how should I be, um, you know, conducting my business because this is new to me? Um, there's definitely a lot of fear. Um, but as black people and people of color, we live with everyday fear. We're born into this world carrying a lot of fear. So I think that it's okay for individuals to, you know, acknowledge they have some fear. This is new. They're nervous, but get past it. Because if we as people of color can move past our fear and navigate this world in, in everyday ways, it's okay for you to, you know, move past the fear that you've had maybe the past few months as racial issues have been exacerbated throughout the media. So, Ashley, if it's okay to ask questions, and, and I'm glad to hear you say that, you know, I, I, I think back to I have a friend of mine on Facebook, a, a black lady who has been talking about this lots and trying to bring attention to it, obviously, and, and says, you know, don't expect us to do your homework for you, though. You need to do a little research on your own. So kind of a mixed message, I think, for us. We're not sure what we should ask and what we shouldn't ask. You know what I mean? And the same thing with black people, you know, yeah. we're not sure we're not sure what we should do, how we should dress, how we should walk, how we should navigate. These are things that we have to um, process through every day. And it is a complex situation. And until we live in a world that is um, anti-racist, these are issues that we're going to have to um, process through. Yeah. And so I think it's important to definitely do your own work, educate yourself read books, surround yourself with individuals um, who look different than you. Um, That's important. This is how we create change, you know, read literature, um, media, art that is by and about people of color. You know, and I don't mean to take that away from you. I'm not not putting the two in the same category absolutely at all. But, you know, we as as white people, when we want to be allies and help and understand better, you know, I just, I'm glad to hear you say that, you know, it's okay to ask questions and and say, you know, I'm not sure what wording I should use and, and make sure that we get it right so we can be there with you. Yeah, so I'm saying it's definitely okay to ask questions. But again, each person is different. So be mindful of who are you asking your questions to and how. Um, And, you know, how are you showing up? Because it takes a lot of energy as black and brown people to answer a lot of questions. And some of us get compensated for this. So, I mean, is this something that you you need education and one-on-one for? So then maybe you need to actually hire somebody, um, invoice someone for their time so that they can actually show up in a way and answer your questions in a productive way. Because, you know, just just being black in America or being brown doesn't mean that they they are here to answer all of your questions and be at your beck and call because it takes a lot of energy. It's, it's very emotional. That's fair. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. Listen, a uh, great article in Huffington Post, and it uh, describes a term as micro-invalidation, which I would consider minimizing 
And these are statements uh, like, um, you know, saying, I don't see color or slavery was abolished years ago or all lives matter. Whereas people think that they're, you know, uh, trying to be an ally. These are uh, way off the pace and they minimize uh, what's been uh, what's been happening. Is that is that the case? Exactly. Um, it's really a, a distraction, a lot of those things. And when you say you don't see color, that means you don't see me because I'm mm-hmm. a black woman. And in order to look at me, you have to see me. You have to acknowledge who I am. And I think for non-black people, that's something easy to say. Um, it, it sounds good, but the reality is it's, it's very harmful. It's very hurtful. Mm-hmm. And yes, all lives matter. But the reality is black lives have not mattered throughout the history of this country. And until black lives matter, all lives don't matter because we have to really pay attention to our most vulnerable. And so how are you treating your vulnerable? How are you treating those lives who, who do not matter? So is, when, they, when they show that they matter, then we can, we can say things like all lives matter. Is that where the term that, that racial trauma comes in then, Ashley? Is it that, you know, this is trauma that has even been born of, of decades and, and generations of, of, you know, discrimination that's been going on forever? Yeah, so racial trauma really is a term. It was recently just developed, although it's fairly new. It's not It's not a new concept. It's something that's been embedded into our culture. And it's a form of trauma that Black people, people of color, and Indigenous people really experience from a reoccurrence of race-based stress. And, you know, it causes things like anxiety, depression, fear, um, hypervigilance. There's a whole host of things um, that occur. Um, and it's similar to PTSD, but it differs in the fact that it, it's constantly reoccurring. Typically with PTSD, it's a singular um, event. There are things that are reoccurring with some traumatic events with PTSD. Um, but with racial trauma, you know, it's constantly ongoing. It's not going to stop. As, as much as I would love for it to be, most likely racism isn't going to end tomorrow. So this is an ongoing issue that people of color experience. Thank you so much for spending time with us this morning, Ashley. You're welcome. Thanks for having me and for having this conversation. Good stuff. And you can find more info at Ashley, M-C-G-I-R-T, AshleyMcGirt.com. Ashley McGirt, a therapist specializing in racial trauma. 8-12 on the morning news. Farmers who've had a slow start to the season got some positive news in the latest Alberta government crop report. We're joined now by Alberta Federation of Agriculture President Lynn Jacobson. Good morning to you, Lynn. Yeah, good morning. Well, we know that the recent hail uh, hurt the crops in Calgary in the area, uh, but big picture, it, it's a positive outlook, isn't it? Uh, for the most part, it is, uh, but... Uh it's hard to make a generalization that it's good for everybody because okay. there is areas of concern in the province. So what's good, what's bad? What's, how are we shaping up uh, around southern Alberta anyway, Lynn? Uh, southern Alberta, this is probably one of our better years we've seen for quite a few, uh, especially for the dryland farmers uh, down here. Uh, crop conditions are looking excellent at this point in time, especially in our Inchant area. Uh, probably had more rain in the last month than we had in the last two years total. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, but I, I guess it's kind of taking the foot off the gas uh, from those uh, rain showers at the right time because uh, steady rain for weeks and weeks uh, doesn't work either, does it? No, no, you need the heat and uh, the sunshine uh, to keep 
you know, crop developing and that. Uh, too much moisture uh, besides, you know, it harms a crop. It also promotes a lot of disease. But this year, it's, it's just seemed to have been working out very, very well for us down in the south. Uh, so our crop conditions are, are looking excellent for a good yield on dry land. And uh, there's a lot of irrigation in our areas, and irrigation usually isn't affected by, um, you know, ex- or moisture. Um, but mm-hmm. we... Uh, not not many irrigation systems at this at this point in time are, are running full time. <laughs> That's interesting. You don't need them now. You said you're by Enchant, which is down near Tabor, correct? So yes. Tabor corn crop looks to be fingers crossed a good one this year for us. Uh, so far, uh, I think. Uh, well, we haven't had a big hailstorm go through the major growing growing area of that uh, that crop that everybody likes to to eat in the fall. Uh, so that's been you know positive on that end of it. But it's, it's still, to a certain extent, a tale of uh, two different sections. You can almost cut the province in half. Am I right here in saying that uh, north of the central region of the province, it was it was a different story with too much moisture? Uh, yeah, was, when you get north of Calgary, uh, the moisture level continues or gets more and more and more as we go through. And you get up around the Camrose, Two Hills area, and uh, like Humphrey Bannock, one of our board members, said his back teeth are floating because it's so wet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Lynn, so talk to us. We know Tabor corn, obviously, the big one. Southern Alberta, with the crops looking good, what are you growing? What do we grow in this province in that area? Uh, well, we've got a lot of specialty crops. we got potatoes. we got sugar beets. Uh, there's a lot of pulses growing in our growing in our area, but they're, they're all over over the province. Uh, the other crops would be wheat and hemp and some other uh, crops on that area too. Uh, a lot of hay produced uh, pasture uh, and the pasture is looking very good this year. Uh, plus the hay crops are coming off now and they're looking really nice. Yeah, well, you know, harvest, when, when is the last day of harvest? Uh, I'm obviously crop dependent. Uh, well, I guess what I'm getting at here is uh, we got much more summer left, so uh, still an opportunity to see, uh, you know, some increased uh, productivity? Uh, well, it all depends on. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if it gets too wet uh, and starts delaying the crops a little bit, uh, then we start pushing up against what I always considered was sort of a, a date that you wanted to be you know, mature crops or have mature crops was about September 15th. Okay. Uh, basically, is an average time you get a frost. Uh, people that have gone through uh, or had hail and that and the crops have uh, uh, recovered and some of them have recovered from the hail, hail because uh, the cereals will recover if they're not too, too uh, mature. Um, but it puts your harvest back and... Uh, that's what one of the things that people will get, will get concerned if they've had any delays is that that when's the, when's the frost going to be? Yeah. Could it, get lucky and it could go into October sometime uh, before you get a frost down here too. Lynn, I laugh because when I'm listening to you, it's like, yeah, for now, oh maybe. I'm not sure about tomorrow. It's such a day-to-day world, isn't it, for farmers? Do you just love what you do, or is it just something that that you, that's really what you know? Uh, you love what you do, but it drives you crazy. <laughs> it's like, it it's like being married, really. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. Come on. Because <laughs> your wife's listening. All right. Good answer. Good answer. Uh, well, it, it sounds like it's good news for farmers, you know, in southern Alberta anyway. We're super glad to hear that. And we'll, we'll keep checking in with you and make sure that the uh, the weather's cooperating and that uh, you guys are, are having a good a good go this year. Okay. Well, thank you for the call. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
Coming up on 709 now on your Friday morning, and boy, the number of Americans dying from the coronavirus has continued rising. It started rising yet again. More than 800 have died in each of the last three days. That's a big bump over even just last week. To talk about it, we're joined now by Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, Jackson Prosco. Hi, Jackson. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, the numbers, it, it's startling really to see how quickly they're climbing and not just illnesses, but deaths on the rise now too. Yeah, and I think we need to brace ourselves for the fact that we're in a situation in the U.S. where each day is going to be worse than the day before it, uh, which is kind of a, an incredible thing to have to think about. But you have to remember that deaths and hospitalizations are lagging indicators. They come weeks after people are initially diagnosed if they succumb to the, the sort of worst of this virus. And so if we're seeing day after day of 50 and 60,000 new cases in the U.S., it's going to take some time for those cases to work their way through the system in the form of increased increasing deaths. And just yesterday, we had more than 800 deaths again in this country, which is a number we haven't seen since June. You mentioned the lagging behind the number of cases, and we're hearing it seems like every day about different states who are at capacity or over capacity when it comes to hospital beds. Does that list continue to grow? It does. You know, Florida, Arizona, Texas come to mind. Uh, Louisiana now says that they have lost all the gains that they made on this virus back in May and June. Uh, there are new hotspots with daily records of case numbers appearing in Montana, in Idaho, in Missouri, in Alabama. The list goes on and on. I believe we're up to 41 states now where case numbers are increasing. Jackson, I see on your Twitter you are uh, talking about a poll and um, Americans are not happy with the way Donald Trump has handled the response to COVID-19. I can only imagine that's getting worse as those numbers continue to climb. Yeah, it's at a new record. Two-thirds of Americans say they disapprove of how the president is handling this. And really, it's because the president's tactic has been one of two things. It's either to ignore this, and just this week he said it's going away on its own, we're doing great, or it's to downplay this and essentially defy science and defy the reality that Americans are living. Uh, he has instead focused on issues surrounding, you know, the takedown of Confederate statues, his feud with uh, um, uh, social justice movements, for example. And really, there is only one issue on the minds of Americans right now. It's the pandemic, because everything stems from that. The economic trouble stems from the pandemic. You can't work if people are getting sick and your business is shut down. And so uh, I think Trump, if he hasn't already realized this, is going to quickly realize that as November looms, there's only one issue that Americans care about. That's the American people of kind of disagreeing two-thirds, as, as mentioned there, and even within the Trump camp. A, a gentleman, uh, Dr. Fauci, who we thought may have been, uh, you know, cast aside months ago, coming, uh, you know, against the grain uh, with what the president said. And as you mentioned, he said, we're doing great. Well, Dr. Fauci was quoted as saying, as a country, when you compare us to other countries, I don't think you can say we're doing great. I mean, we're just not. And when this is coming from the top doctor when it comes to COVID-19, that's got to hurt credibility. It really does. I mean, you have to remember that Fauci is not a political appointee. He has served under, I believe, five different presidents now. He is 78 years old. He is a world-renowned expert in his field. He is not partisan. He's going to tell it like it is. And that's what's gotten him into trouble with this White House, which has not wanted to give the full unvarnished truth to the American people. In fact, uh, this week we had the first White House coronavirus task force briefing uh, that we've had in at least two weeks. And Fauci was not allowed to attend, even though he is widely seen as the most credible, most honest voice 
voice for giving an assessment of what's going on. Increasingly as well, Fauci is finding that he is not allowed to partake in interviews or answer interview requests, again, because his message contradicts what the administration is saying. You know, and, and it's interesting to see here, you know, on our side of the border, Jackson, a doctor yesterday saying that U.S.-Canada border could remain closed until next year unless something miraculous happens as we continue to watch those cases climb in the States. Yeah, I mean, I cannot imagine that there are many Canadians who are clamoring for that border to reopen right now. I can't imagine it would be politically saleable for Prime Minister Trudeau to say, yeah, I'm reopening the border right now either. As long as there's a free flow of trade and essential workers, uh, I think Canadians, I'm just assuming, are going to be quite content with the arrangement as it stands uh, at this point in time. You know, part of the thing we're seeing here in the U.S. is because there are no uh, travel restrictions domestically, places that had recovered from the virus are now seeing the virus reseeded as people go and vacation in these hotspots and bring the virus back. And we're seeing huge outbreaks uh, in places uh, like Virginia, in West Virginia, that all started with a trip to, say, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Mm. And yeah, yeah, those uh, areas that have not been hard hit, you're, uh, you know, talking about maybe travel from a place like Florida, which is now the epicenter. And I'm hearing and and reading more and more about how uh, the uh, local governments, the municipal governments would like to see uh, contact tracing. And that's something that's not happening uh, down in in a hot zone like Florida. Yeah, although, to be honest, uh, not only is contract tracing not happening, but it would be virtually useless at this point because there is such a backlog of tests and people are waiting seven to ten days for their test results. Uh, Imagine finding out ten days after taking a test that you've been positive the entire time and then how many people, contact tracers, would have to go and track down and all of their contacts as well. It would be meaningless at this point. Jackson, switching gears just a little bit before we let you go, yesterday's Supreme Court ruling prosecutors in New York would be able to inspect Donald Trump's financial record What exactly are prosecutors looking for here? Yeah, so this goes to the payments to Stormy Daniels and another woman who alleged that they were given hush money uh, to keep quiet about alleged affairs with Donald Trump, uh, campaign payments, which be, would be violations of campaign finance rules. And then Democrats in the House are also looking for the same documents because they're curious about Trump's foreign entanglements, if you want to put it politely. In other words, is he getting money from other foreign governments? Uh, and they're also curious about whether he has committed any financial crimes because there are allegations of tax fraud uh, that appeared in a New York Times investigation earlier this year. It's a win-win for both sides. They may someday get those tax records, but the president gets to dribble the ball a little bit longer because this is headed back to lower courts, which means nobody will know what's in those records until after the election if they are in fact released. Well, and in the grand scheme of things, let's say it was released even next week. Does that matter? Uh, You know, or is it majorly overshadowed by the coronavirus crisis? Yeah, I mean, as I say, I think there's only one issue on the minds of, on the mind of Americans right now, and it's not the president's tax returns. Uh, one other thing uh, we noticed yesterday about in Oklahoma, a decision came down from the courts ruling that a big chunk of that state actually falls within an Indian reservation. Does that change anything there? Uh, yeah, that's going to be very curious to see sort of how the consequences of that uh, bear out. Uh, you know, the, the treatment of Indigenous people in the United States is vastly different than it is in Canada, and there is an increasing push for territorial rights and sovereignty. So this is a, a big step forward in that direction. Well, let's talk and, and uh, focus on the election one more time here, and uh, that is Biden uh, coming out big time against uh, President Trump yesterday, uh, to, uh, saying, you know, the steps he would be taking at this point, etc. Um, this is really a chance for him to, to gain some ground and uh, turn up the heat, I would think. 
Yeah, I would think at this point, Biden is probably not going to have to run many negative campaign ads because the disapproval of the president is so high. And all he has to do is portray himself as a competent leader. He's already much more moderate than many people in the Democratic Party, which means he can capture up those disaffected Republicans. And uh, it may be a pretty simple strategy for Biden at this point, which is just show what he would be doing if he was sitting in the Oval Office during this time of crisis. Oh, but how quickly things can change, right, Jackson? (laughs) We'll be watching as we lead up towards that election. But uh, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. You as well. Take care. Yeah, that is Jackson Prosco. He's our Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. 800 deaths per day. Per day. That is shocking. That's 56% uh, higher than the same time just even last week. So that's how much of a rise. And the other part of it is like the lag. The cases, then the hospital, then the deaths. Yeah. So, and young people, too. This, yeah. They're really seeing the numbers in young people. Sicknesses and deaths really going up. And that's not how we had seen it previously. Broadway star Nick Cordero reported that he passed there away a go. few days ago. It's Friday and we are oh so close to getting back to the movie theaters, but not quite yet. So we check in with Brett McGarry of the Couch Potatoes to find out what's on on television again this weekend. Hi, Brett. Hello there. Hey, thanks for joining us. I know there's something from, well, one of my favorite actresses, Charlize Theron, has a new film coming out on Netflix this weekend, yeah? Yeah, she's in a movie called The Old Guard. Here's a clip to set that up. So how old are you? We met in the Crusades. The Crusades? We killed each other. We made it down. We fought thousands of battles side by side. So we really never die. Nothing that lives, lives forever. One day your wounds just don't heal up anymore. We don't know when. So The Old Guard is based on a graphic novel from 2017, and it's about four mercenary-type warriors who happen to be immortal. They've protected humanity for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and they've been on their own for a long time as just four until they discover a new immortal. So Charlize Theron plays the leader of the group, Andy, she's the oldest of the bunch. We don't know how old she is. The new recruit is Niall, a a U.S. Marine who gets injured in battle and has a miraculous recovery. And that's when the immortals sense her and they track her down. Turns out just in the nick of time, too, because there's this greedy big pharma guy who knows their secret. And he wants to, of course, harness their powers for his own financial gain. When I watched the trailer, I thought, wow, this looks cool. Like, I've never heard of this comic book. And Theron, of course, has proven herself to be just amazing at action movies. I mean, you remember that mm-hmm. movie, Atomic Blonde? Yep. So good in that. And she was great in that Mad Max movie. She's amazing at pretty much every any kind of role she tackles and uh, she is certainly more than capable here uh unfortunately i just i i hate to say this but i i found myself kind of bored at times during this movie like for an action movie uh did not have as much action as i expected and uh this movie has no visual flair whatsoever there's no style to it it's just straightforward and basic but the writing and the acting are tremendous. All of the characters are fully developed to the point where you really care about each of them. And there's a nice twist at the end that sets up a potential sequel, if not franchise. So cool. I think The Old Guard is worth a look, but it's just good, not great. So I'm going to give it three couch cushions out of five. <laughs> okay, so we got The Old Guard. What else is streaming this week that we can check out? 
Okay, so something debuted on Wednesday called Stateless, starring Kate Blanchett. She co-created and, and co-starred in this six-part suspense drama. Follows four people from different backgrounds who meet in an immigration detention center in Australia. Kate uh, Blanchett is uh, amazing. Uh, there is a show called Down to Earth with Zac Efron. The high school musical star travels around the world in search of healthy lifestyles that won't destroy the planet. So that debuts this weekend. If you're looking for family stuff, there's the epic tales of Captain Underpants in Space. <laughs> There's Hello Ninja Season 3. And we talked a few weeks back about a show called Dating Around. Well, there is Dating Around Brazil. Uh, so I might actually check that out. <laughs> of and, course you will. Uh, what's that? <laughs> of course you will. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> well, I love that Dating Around show. I think as far as the dating shows go, it was really, really good TV. It, it's not trashy TV. At least I didn't think it was trashy. And everything and, Brazil uh, is just plain sexy, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, the setting alone will be worth uh, having a look at. Yep. So I'll give that a whirl. And uh, as far as uh, reality stuff on global TV, uh, they did something on Wednesday that is hosted by the host of The Amazing Race, Phil Kogan. It's called Tough as Nails. These are the hardworking people that keep things running. You are old, tough as nails. Six men and women, the best of the best in their chosen trade. I melt metal together, and we keep the world going. I am an iron worker. They'll be competing in real-world challenges. We're going to be picking up 3,000 pounds of sand. And they'll give it up. Time to go to work! Toughest Nails, new series Wednesday, July 8th on Global. So if you missed that, you can get it on the Global TV app, or I'm sure you can get it on demand through your PVR. Fun. Sounds kind of cool. Good stuff. Yeah. Lots to choose from until we can get into the theaters. Thank you so much, Brett. All right, guys. Yeah, I missed that movie, Popcorn. My stomach doesn't. <laughs> <for time. laughs> Agree. Does. Agree. Yeah. And there you have it. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. All right, guys. That is Brett McGarry of The Couch Potatoes.